As we uh, continue our worship this morning and uh, prepare our hearts for the word, can we take a few moments to, to bow in prayer? Father, we are thankful. We are thankful uh, for Christ, our Savior and our Lord. We're thankful for the opportunity to worship. We thank you for the celebration that we have to celebrate the first advent of Christ as we eagerly anticipate the second coming of Christ. Uh, Father, this morning as we transition our focus onto your word, we pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds for what you would have for us. Allow your word to take root and bear fruit unto righteousness as a seed is planted. Uh, we pray, Father, what we know not this morning that you would teach us. Well, we have not that you would give us and who we are not in Christ. We ask that you'd make us and we pray it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was getting a haircut. And as I sat down, my barber was preparing me and she put one of those things on you to make sure none of the hair gets on you. And then, uh, with her razor, she asked me a question. She said, are you excited for the holidays? She was talking about Thanksgiving that was approaching and then Christmas season that followed it. And I responded, excited, I'm thrilled. After all, in my head, I was thinking to myself, it's the most wonderful time of the year. I love the holiday season. She was a bit taken aback. She actually took a step back with her razor, a bit surprised at my answer. And I was more surprised at her reaction. And then she started to explain herself. She said, all today I've been asking that question and every single person who's come in has told me they're not excited. Actually, they're dreading the holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I asked her, I said, why do you think that is? And she began to explain. She said, well, maybe because of the busyness of the season. Maybe it's because around the holidays you have to be with people and talk with people that you don't necessarily want to be with, like family members that you don't necessarily like. And she said all of the preparations that go into the season, whether decorations or preparing for a meal. And you know, as I was reflecting on that conversation this past week, I couldn't help but think how easy it is, even for us as Christians, to get distracted from the true reason for the season. How many of us, if, how many of us, if we are honest, would admit that at times, you know, the Christmas season can feel more um, uh, like a chore than a celebration? I don't know about you, but this past couple weeks as uh, we've been driving through our neighborhood, uh, my wife and I, she's been noticing different folks who have been already putting up their Christmas lights. And every time she sees them, she gives me a nudge and says, look at those beautiful Christmas lights and nudges me, when are we going to put up ours? And sometimes Christmas can feel more like a, a chore than a celebration. Other times it can feel more like a, a burden than a blessing. Uh, Christmas, the season, can sometimes be a burden for many simply because there are going to be some that you want to spend the holiday with that you won't be able to, either because they're away and they cannot come to you or they've passed away and, and our hearts hurt because of that. Or like my barber said, there are some people you wish that you could see, other people that you wish that you didn't have to see, and so Christmas season can sometimes feel like more of a burden than a blessing. But what I want to take some time to do this morning is to remind you in a new series, The Christmas Story, what the Christmas season is all about. I want to take some time to remind you why this is the most wonderful time of the year. I want to take some time to remind you to keep Christ at the center of Christmas and not to lose focus by all of the distractions going on around us. 
I don't know if you realize it or not, but the Christmas story actually doesn't begin in the manger in Bethlehem. It begins in a garden. It begins in a garden where the need for Christmas first arises and the promise of Christmas is first introduced. And so I want to invite you to begin with me to walk through the Christmas story in Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to be in the first 15 verses together. The book of Genesis is the first book in the Bible. It's a book that is a book about beginnings. It refers to the origins of heaven and earth and everything in it. Uh, it was a, a unique gift to the Jewish people, especially as they were entering into the promised land. Because it gave them a worldview through a lens through which to see the world around them and to answer the ultimate questions of life. Questions like origin, where did we come from? Destiny, what happens to us after we die? Morality, how do you differentiate between right and wrong? And meaning, how do I find ultimate purpose for my life? And not only did it provide a worldview for the Jewish people, a lens through which to see the world, but it provides the same for us. In the beginning, you hear that God created the heavens and the earth. Before creation had come into existence, God already existed. The Bible refers to God as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, he was there at the beginning and he'll be there at the end. He is the everlasting God. And the reason we have creation is because he's the source, he is the origin. He created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He, when he created the earth, he separated the, 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 the sea from the sky, and then he created dry land. In six literal days, we learn about how God created the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, the cattle on the ground. He created it all. And on the sixth day, we learn that he created the peak and the pinnacle of his creation in creating man Man and woman, Adam and Eve in his image. In the image of God, he created them. And we learn at the end of chapter 2, they were naked and they were unafraid. They are innocent and they are vulnerable. And they are not fearful of the other taking advantage of the other because in their innocence, they have perfect union and intimacy with one another and perfect intimacy with God. But as we turn the page to chapter 3, we get to read about uh, what the garden teaches us about the story of Christmas. So would you stand in honor of the reading of the word, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. The Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust in all the days of your life. Uh, verse 15, this is the one I want you to highlight. This is the one I want you to focus on. This is the good news and the promise of Christmas. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The word of the Lord, you all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. The question I want us to consider is what do we learn about the Christmas story from the garden? Knowing that the Christmas story doesn't begin in a manger in Bethlehem, but in the garden of Eden. We're going to see two things together. The first thing we're going to learn about the Christmas story from the garden is our need for Christmas in verses 1 through 13, and then the promise of Christmas in verses 14 to 15. Uh, let's begin by talking about our need for Christmas in verses 1 to 13. In verses 1 to 13, if I could break it down for you, in the first six verses, we see the temptation. In 7 to 13, we see the confrontation. As we begin in the first six verses, we see the temptation that led to the fall of humanity and presented to us our need for Christmas, our need for a Savior. The text begins as we're introduced to a serpent. Now, if you've never read Genesis and you're reading through for the first time, all up to this point, it's been good news. God creates and he calls it good. When God says it's good, he says it's appropriate and fitting within his plan and within his purpose. We learn in, in Genesis chapter 1 that he is the creator of heaven and earth and everything in it. He goes into more detail in chapter 2 to describe to us uh, his creation of man and woman. It's interesting to note in, in chapter 2, as he creates the man, puts him in the garden, and, and he's in this orchard, he gives him this command. The woman is not yet there, right? And he gives the command in verse 16 to 17. He says, take a look at the garden. You can eat of all of the trees in the orchard. Enjoy all the fruit thereof. But there's one tree I don't want you to touch. There's one tree I don't want you to eat of because when you eat of it, you will surely die. And that's actually before the woman is there. Uh, after that, we learn that uh, he starts to name different animals and then the Lord puts him to sleep, takes a rib out of him, fashions a woman, and then we learn that they are naked and they are unashamed. Um, and then we enter into chapter three and, and then an interesting character is presented to us a serpent. Now, up to this point, you wouldn't think anything of the serpent if you haven't read the rest of Genesis or the rest of the scriptures. And so we're just, we're introduced to the serpent and he's described in a few different ways. He's described as cunning. He's described as a created being. And he's described as speaking. 
Uh, let's first begin. Let me read the text to you. It says in um, uh, verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, it's not a surprise to find a serpent, at least up to this point. And it tells us the serpent is first cunning. Uh, the, the, the idea that the serpent is cunning could be a virtue or it could be a vice. We don't know at this point, if you haven't read the rest, if this serpent is a friend of Eve and Adam and God or if he is a foe. Now, as you, the story unfolds, as we read the rest of the chapter, we learn the fact that he is cunning is actually more of a vice than a virtue. This serpent is not a friend to the woman. He's not a friend of God, and he's certainly no friend to you or I. And we're introduced to this serpent, and he says that he is cunning. It's interesting. If you take a look at the Hebrew word that is translated cunning, and you see the Hebrew word that is translated naked that describes the current state of the man and woman who are naked and unashamed, you see that those words, uh, are, they, they look very closely related to one another. And the reason as the story unfolds is, is that this serpent is not a friend, he is a foe. And what he's going to do is he's going to prey on the innocence and the vulnerability of Adam and Eve. And as the story unfolds, we see that the serpent is cunning. He is not a friend. He is a foe. Remember that. He's no friend of yours. He's no friend of Adam or Eve's. He's no friend of God's. Secondly, he's described as a, a created being. It says, and the serpent was more cunning than any of beast of the field which the Lord had made. You know, sometimes we, we put God and the devil on an equal scale. We see God as good, we see Satan as evil, and sometimes we think of the power of Satan as equal to that of the power of God. No, there's no comparison. God is the creator, everything else is the creation, including Satan. Including the serpent, and Satan is behind the serpent. So let me take a moment to remind you, if you've forgotten, that Satan is a defeated foe. He has no power. He has no power over God. God is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He is omnibenevolent. He is the all-powerful God, and Satan is but a created being, and as we're going to see in verse 15, a defeated foe. And so let me take a moment to remind you he is a created being. We see the serpent, but as we're going to read later, there is, a, there is Satan behind the serpent. Now, some of you may be wondering, how do I know that Satan is behind the serpent, especially if you're just reading this for the first time? Well, if I bring it to Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it says, so the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Satan is behind the serpent, and Satan is behind those who seek to lead the people of God astray. You remember John chapter 10, verse 10, as Jesus is teaching about the fact that he is the door to the sheep. He is the one that leads to salvation and the abundant life. He, he says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He, doesn't, he comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. Who is the thief? The thief is the false teacher who leads the people of God astray. Who is behind the false teacher? It is 
Satan. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and may have it in abundance. Satan is cunning. He's described as a created being. Thirdly, Satan is described as speaking. Now, if, if, if you didn't know if it was unusual, now it becomes a bit unusual. Even if you were the Jewish people, as you're heading into the promised land, uh, you see a talking snake. That should be reason to step back and wonder, something's wrong. But not only is it interesting that this snake can speak, it's more interesting what he says. Because what he says, the first words out of his mouth is questioning the very word of God. Let me remind you, it says, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Can I take a moment to, to, to warn you and I to beware of anyone who questions the authority of the word of God over our lives. The serpent asks, has God really said this? Now, it's one thing to question God's word and to ask questions and to study and say, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures, God breathes profitable doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. What Satan is doing is he's questioning the very authority of God's word. Beware of anything or anyone who should question the authority of God's word over your life including your feelings. There are times when your feelings, although they are real, they're not always reliable, will lead you astray. And whenever your feelings contradict the reality of the authoritative word of God, God's word should take priority over our feelings. A lot of times we like to ask, how, how does that make you feel? When it comes to God's word, I don't just want to know how you feel. I want to know what I need to know according to the truth of God's word. Beware of anything or anyone that should lead you astray from the authority and the truth of God's word. That includes your friends and your family. You ever hear advice that's contradictory to the will of God and the word of God? But we're going to learn in a moment the, the, the very thing that led the people of God or Adam and Eve astray was the fact that not only did they question the authority of God's word for their life, but they chose to follow the authority of the word of the serpent over the authority of the word of the Lord. That's the difference. And so the key to understanding this text that led Adam and Eve into the fall due to the temptation is the fact that they've listened to someone or something other than the authority of the word of God. Beware of anything or anyone that should question the authority of God's word over your life. So first he questions the authority of God's word and then he puts an emphasis, Satan does, he puts an emphasis on the prohibition, not the, the provision. Let me take you back to chapter two, verse 16. So you see the original command given to Adam. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. God puts Adam and Eve in the garden and he says, everything, enjoy it. I mean, you talk about unlimited resources. You talk about fruit that's pleasing to the eyes that will satisfy you. I mean, this is fruit and it's ripe and it's juicy. He says, enjoy all of it. But this tree... This tree, don't eat of it, because in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Look, and look at what Satan says here. He puts an emphasis on the prohibition. He says, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? That's 
uh, how the strategy of Satan works. You take a look at all of the blessing, all of the provision of God and all that you and I can focus on because of our fleshly desires is what we can't have rather than what we do have and we start to believe the lie that sin is the path to ultimate satisfaction. When the reality, it's a path that leads to misery, that leads to chaos, that leads down to destruction and ultimately that leads down to death. And so he asks the woman, she's innocent, she's a bit vulnerable, he's cunning. And the woman answers the question and she answers with the provision. She answers um, uh, um, with the provision first. Verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of all the trees of the garden. And then the prohibition. But the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. Now the original command said, you, uh, if you shall eat it, you shall surely die. So don't eat it. Whether or not she adds on to that or not, um, it kind of looks like it. Don't eat it, don't touch it. Now, I don't see any problem with that. If you need to stay away from sin, don't eat it, don't touch it. That sounds pretty good to me. Don't eat it, don't touch it, and then the consequence, lest you, you die. I want to take a moment to, to, to remind you that you and I have free will. This is a good verse to help us see and understand uh, the, how to reconcile human responsibility with God's sovereignty. Uh, here it is. In human responsibility, you and I have a free will to choose whether or not we will obey the will of God or we will disobey the will of God. You've got God's word. God's word gives it plainly to us. Are you going to hear and heed God's word or are you going to disobey God's word? You have free will. You have a choice to make. You have human responsibility whether you will obey God or you will choose to disobey God. Here's the other side of it. While you can choose whether you will obey him or disobey him, you cannot choose the consequences. You may have freedom to choose whether you will obey him or not obey him, but he is sovereign over the consequences. And ultimately, sin results in death. You wanted to reconcile the two? There it is. And what the woman says here is, in the day that we eat of it, this is what the Lord said, we shall surely die. So we saw the serpent, we saw the question he asks, he questions God's word, he questions uh, um, the woman by putting an emphasis on the prohibition over the provision. The woman answers, and then we hear how the, how the, the lies of the serpent come forth. Then the serpent said to the woman, you shall, will not surely die. Uh, if you're trying to figure out the strategy of Satan, things haven't changed much. Satan is still going about his business in the same way, and he's still telling the same lies that you and I, even as Christians, sometimes believe. The first lie is that you can sin and not face the consequences. What does Satan say? He says, the day that you eat of it, you will not surely die. You can sin and not experience death. You can do the crime and not pay the consequences. What Satan is saying here is sin really isn't that bad. The consequences aren't as bad as you think. That's the first lie of Satan. The second lie is told as we continue to read, you can sin and get away with it. He continues in verse five, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
evil. What is the lie of Satan? The lie of Satan is not only you can sin and get away with it, but secondly, sin is the path that leads to ultimate satisfaction and God wants to hold you back from it. What Satan is saying is God's not that good and sin's not that bad. Sin does not carry consequences. Sin will lead you to find ultimate satisfaction and what you so long for and desire, God is holding you back from enjoying all that you can enjoy, that your eyes might be open, that you might be like him, knowing good and evil. You hear the same lies today. People say, well, I'm free. I'm free to do whatever I want when the reality is they are enslaved, they are deceived. Now, what it means to be deceived is ultimately because the woman is deceived is to hear the lies of Satan and think that you are not deceived at all. That's the key to deception. So you talk to folks today and they say, well, I'm not deceived. I'm my own master, really. When sin comes calling, when the desires of your heart come calling, you follow and you have a master. You submit to someone or something. And Satan tells these two lies. Sin's not that bad. It doesn't have consequences. And God's not that good. Sin is the path to ultimate satisfaction. What a lie from the pit of hell. And yet so many continue to listen to it and to be deceived by it. Whenever you hear a word contrary to the word of God and you follow that path, whether it's your feelings, your family, or your friends, ultimately you're on a path not towards life and blessing, but chaos and destruction. And so those are the lies of Satan. And unfortunately, Eve hears the lies and she is deceived. Verse six, it says, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes. It was edible. Okay, I can actually eat it. That's a good sign. It's pleasing to the eyes. I mean, it's, it's good for me to eat. I mean, it's juicy. And it's also helpful for making me wise. God is holding me back from ultimate satisfaction. This prohibition is actually keeping me from experiencing the best that humanity and experience. And it says she took the fruit and ate. What happened in this moment is the, what the woman did or whatever, we participate in sin and we see something that God has said is not good and we see it as good when we choose to disobey God, what we are ultimately doing is taking the place of God. God is the one who differentiates right and wrong. He provides the measurement of truth and untruth, good and evil. What the woman has done here is she has, she has looked at the fruit and said, it is good for me. When the reality is God is God and we are not. So she eats it. She takes a bite of it. There's Adam. Here, Adam, do you want a piece as well? And he takes a bite of it as well. And we see the temptation. We see the first part of our need for Christmas, the temptation that led the human race into sin. But not only do we see the temptation, we also see the confrontation. Uh, they will be held accountable for their sins. They are responsible. They um, may be innocent, but they are also accountable and responsible for the sin they have committed. Verse seven, then the eyes of both of them were opened. I guess they got what they wanted. 
They wanted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's original design is that they would simply know good and not know evil by experiencing it, by their participation in it. God's design was always that they would hear the word of God, trust the word of God, and experience the blessings of God in trusting God's word. What leads us astray is saying, God, I want to experience it for myself. I want to know, really, if this path leads down a path that leads to chaos, destruction, and ultimately death. Their eyes were open, and they saw their shame. It says, so when the woman saw, um, verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. What has occurred right here? Their perfect intimacy and union has been severed. They look at each other, they look upon themselves and they say, we are naked. Uh, they begin to cover themselves with fig, fig leaves. Uh, there is no longer that perfect intimacy where one is not fearful of the other taking advantage of their vulnerability. Not only has their uni unity and union and intimacy been severed, but the, but the relationship with God has been severed as well. In the next verse, as we read, they hide in the trees. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Anthropomorphic language. God is moving about in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. We see the need for confrontation. They have sinned. They see their shame. They feel the guilt of their shame. Uh, they take fig leaves. They hide in the trees. And then verse nine, we hear the word of the Lord. And it says, the Lord God to call to Adam and said, where are you? I want to let you know that the fact that God called out to Adam and asked him where he was, he's not only confronting him and giving him an opportunity to confess, but this is a work of grace. Our Bibles could technically be really short. It could have ended at the end of verse eight because Adam and Eve's sin and lightning bolts from heaven could have come down and consumed them with judgment and God would be just in doing just that. But God in his mercy and his grace has already set forth a plan of redemption. He knew that we would need Christmas and he knew we would need a savior and he knew we would need the promise of a savior and he already had a plan of redemption in mind. What he wanted from Adam is he didn't not know where Adam was. He's God. The reason he says, Adam, where are you? Is he wants to give Adam the opportunity to come to him, to confess his sins before him, to accept responsibility for his sin and seek salvation in the only one who can provide it. He wants Adam to declare, God, your word is the final authority. Your word is the path to ultimate satisfaction and anything and anyone who contradicts that will lead me and anyone else astray down a path that leads to destruction and ultimately death. Adam, where are you? Verse 10, it says, so he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. It's a bit ironic that Adam said, I heard your voice. Because to truly hear the word of God is to not just hear it, it's to heed it. 
The time when Adam should have heard the word of God was when God gave him the command to enjoy all the trees of the garden and the fruit therein, but stay away from that one. Don't eat of that one because in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. What happened for Adam is he listened to the word of his wife over the word of the Lord. Take a look at verse 17. Let me jump there real fast. Then he said to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat. Here is the judgment. Here is the curse. What was Adam's job? He received the command from the Lord. He wasn't even there when he received it. His job was to be the spiritual leader in the marriage. To tell Eve what the truth of God's word said. That's why when the, when the serpent asks, has the Lord really said this? She knew. Who told her? Well, possibly God, but probably Adam. Adam is the spiritual leader. He's, he, he's the one who t- informs her of truth. And ultimately, the spiritual leader is not to lead people astray from the truth of God's word, but lead people to the truth of God's word to come under the authority of God's word. This is a challenge to every husband and father in the room today. You, are been call- you have been called to be the spiritual leader in the home. To be the spiritual leader in the home means that you declare, as for me and my house, I don't know about Joe Smo, who's my neighbor. I don't know about the family I'm sitting next to in the, in, in the chairs next to me in church. But as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. And when our feelings contradict God's word, when our friends contradict the, the word of God, when we contradict the word of God, God's word takes final authority and we will follow the path of God, not the path of any other voice that contradicts it. And what we get to see here is Adam, he answers, he says, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He, he experiences the shame and guilt of sin Verse 11, and he said, who told you that you were naked? One chance after the other. God knows all the answers. He just wants Adam to confess. The word confess simply means to agree with God. When we confess our sins, we say, God, you call it sin, so it's sin. It's not just a mistake. It's sin. I've sinned against you. You call it sin, I'm responsible for it. I'm deserving of the consequences of it and I need to seek salvation from you and you alone because you are the one I've sinned against. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? This is a great opportunity for Adam to say, God, I messed up. And listen what Adam says. He says, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. What does Adam say? It's the woman and it's you, God. Not only am I not responsible, but if you never gave me this woman, I would have never been in the predicament that I am in. And Adam doesn't take an opportunity to confess his sin, accept responsibility for his sin, but blame the wife whom the Lord had given him. So the Lord turns to Eve and He says to Eve, "Um, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Is the woman telling the truth? Yeah. 
The serpent deceived her. He lied to her. And she didn't even know she was being deceived. She saw the fruit. She said it was edible. It was desirable. It was helpful to make her wise. She was deceived. She ate. She gave it to her husband. He ate. She, she was deceived and she ate. But she doesn't take responsibility for her sin. What's the sin of Adam and Eve? The sin of Adam and Eve is instead of listening to the word of God, they've listened to someone else who has contradicted the word of God. Adam listened to his wife who contradicted the word of God. Eve listened to the serpent who contradicted the word of God. Beware of anything or anyone that should lead you astray from trusting the authority of God's word over your life and mine. That includes our feelings. That includes our family members. That includes our friends. That includes ourselves. That includes even those closest to us in our family or even in our marriages. We need to trust the word of Church, why do we need Christmas? What do we learn about the Christmas story from the first 13 verses of Genesis in the temptation and the confrontation? Well, we see our need for Christmas because of our need for a savior. Let me tell you why this is the most wonderful time of the year. Because if you don't know Jesus as your savior and Lord, and we take a look at the world around you, they are lost in need of a savior. They are in a path that leads, uh, down a path that leads to destruction and ultimately death, not just physical death, but spiritual death. There are people who are deceived, thinking that they are free, when the reality is they are under the dominion of Satan and under his influence. And ultimately, we can share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, let me share with you a few reasons why you and I need Christmas uh, this year and every year. The first reason is we need Christmas because we are all responsible for our sin. The reason you and I need Christmas is because we are all responsible for our sin. We can't blame others. It's this person, that person, the family I grew up in. The circumstances that I'm in, the reason I've done this or that is because of this or that, but we are all responsible for our sin. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all missed the mark. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Now let me find it the old-fashioned way. Romans chapter five, verse 12. It says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and death spread to all men because all sinned. We're reminded that we have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've inherited the sin nature of Adam and we all stand responsible. And so that's why we need Christmas and the world needs Christmas. Secondly, the reason we need Christmas is because we are deserving of the consequences of sins. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin, the cost of sin is death. Death is separation and eternity without God and his people forever and ever, but the gift of God is everlasting life. The reason we need Christmas is we are responsible for sin. We are deserving of the consequences of sin. And thirdly, we need Christmas because we can't cover our own sin. 
Isaiah 64, 6 says, but we are like an unclean thing and all our, unri- our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind has taken <coughs> us away. We're reminded that you and I can't cover our own sin. If you go and you meet the Lord today and you lose your life on the way home and God asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? I hope that you don't say because I'm a good person. Because my good outweighs my bad. Some people believe that we're going to meet the Lord and he's got this cosmic scale that will measure our goodness and our evil and our sin and hopefully our good outweighs the sin. And God says, I combine that together and you're just like a filthy rag. Your sin has corrupted the righteousness and your righteousness is, 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 is that which is blown away in the wind, as Isaiah 64, 6 says. You, can't, you and I can't cover our own sin. We're reminded that we are in need of Christ and the blood of Christ which covers our sin, that pays our debt and provides us everlasting life. What are you trusting in to get you into heaven? You can't trust in your religious activity. You can't say, God, it's because I attended church, it's because I was a member of the church, I, I partook of communion, I got baptized, I listened to so many sermons, I sat through so many messages, I survived it all. The only thing that will get you into heaven is trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. That's the only thing that will cover your sin and my sin. And then lastly, the reason we need Christmas is because our greatest need is a need for a Savior. A wise person once said, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But because our greatest need was forgiveness, God has sent us a savior. So we as a church... Why do some churches find themselves thinking the greatest need for humanity is entertainers? Put pastors as entertainers on stages and we entertain the crowd and then we send them home. No, we are a people who have received the amazing grace of God, who have been forgiven of our sins and we have been called to go out and share the good news of the gospel with a lost, dying world around us to let others know that the same way he, he went to seek and save the lost who I was, he can seek and save you as well. And we have an opportunity to preach the good news of the gospel because our greatest need, and so is everyone else's, is a need for a savior. So what do we learn about the Christmas story from the garden? Number one, our need for Christmas. Secondly, the promise of Christmas. Uh, First, we see the curse, and then we see the cure for the curse. Uh, The Lord begins by talking to the serpent in verse 14. So the Lord God... (coughs) So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat the dust all the days of your life. What is the curse given to the serpent? And Satan, we know, is behind the serpent. Uh, We get to see that the serpent is cursed among the cattle. So uh, when sin enters the world, all of creation is cursed. 
this longing for the redemption that will come through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what we hear here is the serpent is cursed among all of the rest of the animals. And so this is the curse and this is the reminder. Whenever you see a serpent slithering on the ground, eating the dust of the field and the dust of the ground, we are reminded of the temptation and the fall of mankind. We're reminded of our need for Christ and we're reminded of a savior. Now, some people take a look at the serpent and they say, oh, he must have walked in and then he crawled out. I don't know, maybe, who knows? But the reality of it is this. Don't miss the main point of the text. Mankind has rejected the word of God and has served someone else and has listened to the word that is contradictory to God's word and there are consequences to sin. The consequence for sin is death. It separates us from God and separates us from one another. And, to, and, and humanity is in need of salvation because we've fallen into sin and we're in need of a, a savior. So there's the curse. He's gonna go in to talk to Adam and he's gonna talk to Eve. But this is the focus of our text today. Verse 15, here's the cure. As he's speaking to the serpent, he says, <coughs> at the end of verse 14, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put and and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This gives us hope that Eve is among the redeemed. You see, Eve, who has listened to the voice of the serpent, and has uh, turned her affection away from the word of God and towards the word of the serpent and has obeyed the serpent rather than the Lord. It says, I'm gonna put enmity between you and the serpent. In other words, there's a hope for redemption for the woman. Why? Because she's not a child of Satan who's behind the serpent. She's a child of God. So it tells us here, it says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. What is the seed of Satan? The seed of Satan refers to all those under his influence. That includes demons and fallen humanity who are under his influence. And so uh, anyone who follows Satan leads people astray just as the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy false teachers, behind false teachers is Satan. Behind those who are doing evil in this world is Satan. Behind uh, leaders who have ultimately been placed there by God and exercise accountability before God, some are being influenced by Satan. He's the prince of the power of the air. And so we get to see what, what, uh, what is said here. We're talking about the seed of Satan. And then it says between your seed and the seed of the woman. What is the seed of the woman? The seed of the woman is redeemed humanity. So this gives us an opportunity to ask the question, who are you the offspring of? Are you from the seed of the serpent or are you uh, the seed of the woman? Let me ask you it this way. Do you come under the authority of the word of God and govern your life accordingly or have you come under the authority of anything that contradicts God's word? Let me tell you this. You may be a child of God. You may have trusted in Christ as your savior and Lord, but whenever you choose to disobey God 
and you choose to listen to anything that contradicts the word of God, you are acting more like a child of Satan than you are a child of God. May that be a reminder to us, are you a seed of the woman among the redeemed or are you a seed of Satan? Ultimately, if we're a seed of the devil, we do what he does and follow his lead. Uh, Jesus, he spoke to the Pharisees this way. You know the religious leaders of the day? In Matthew 12, 34, he called out to them, you brood of vipers. No wonder they wanted to kill him. What is he telling them? He says, you're a bunch of sons of snakes. Who is the, the snake of old? It's Satan. You follow Satan. How can you being evil speak good things for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks? You talk about offensive. That's pretty offensive. That's not very seeker sensitive right there. I mean, Jesus calls them brood of vipers. John 8, 44, it says, you are of your father, the devil. He's speaking of the religious leaders. And the desires of your father you want to do, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, but there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and a father of it. Are you a seed of the woman, or are you a seed of Satan? And then uh, we see a singular masculine pronoun in verse 15. It says, he shall bruise your head. Who is he? We're not just talking about all of the seed of the woman. Now we're talking about one who is the seed of the woman. This is Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the anointed prophet, priest, and king. This is the most exciting part of our text. This is the hope of Christmas. This is the promise of forgiveness and eternal life. It's found in Christ. It says, he, the first name of the Savior, is the seed of the woman. Who is Jesus? He is the seed of the woman. If you're the Jewish people entering into the promised land, how does that make any sense? Because from the seed of the woman would ultimately come the savior of the world. And the reason Jesus would be born of a virgin in a manger is in order that he might die on a cross for the sins of humanity. That's the good news. And it says he, speaking of the Messiah, he shall bruise your head. It says the seed of the woman will bruise or crush the head of the serpent. In other words, Satan is already a defeated foe. It says, you shall bruise his heel. So uh, the Lord Jesus, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and it's going to look as if Satan won. But three days later, Christ rises from the dead in newness of life, defeating sin, defeating Satan, defeating death, and Christ reigns and rules forevermore. This is the promise of Christmas. The story of Christmas doesn't begin in a manger in Bethlehem. It begins in a garden where we're first presented our need for Christmas and we're also presented the promise of Christmas and the hope of Christmas in the Savior, Jesus Christ. We're reminded of our need to be rescued and our need to be redeemed. So what's our response this morning to the Christmas story from the garden? What's our invitation? What is our instruction? Let me give you just a, a few takeaways this morning. The first one is this. Take time to celebrate the Christ of Christmas. 
Take time to celebrate the Christ of Christmas. My prayer is that what you get excited most about are not the decorations or the Christmas trees or the lights. What you get most excited about, I hope, is not Santa Claus and the reindeer and all the rest. You can get excited about those things if you want. But the most excited thing that you should be excited about is the one who came to rescue and redeem sinners, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you this as parents or, or those who are a part of families, you are setting an example. If you're most excited about Christmas dinner, if you're most excited about the decorations and the lights on the trees or Santa Claus or anything else, ultimately you are setting the example of what Christmas is all about. Christmas is not all about that. Christmas is about Christ. Now enjoy all of those things. Celebrate with those things, but elevate Christ as the focus and as the center. Uh, something we wanted to do was provide some kind of resource to our families. We've got what are called Advent Guides. We've got them at the Welcome Center. They're family Advent Guides. And so for the next days leading up to Christmas, you can walk through these Advent Guides and you're gonna read through scriptures. You'll uh, read through stories that connect to scriptures. And there are also little things that children can do at different ages or stages. And it's a great opportunity to prepare your heart and keep Christ at the center of Christmas this year. If we run out, we've got like 25 copies. Uh, we can always uh, get some more or send you an electronic copy. Just let us know on a connection card. But keep Christ at the center of Christmas. Secondly, share the, share the story of Christmas as often as you can. Uh, I'm sure you're going to be attending celebrations. You're going to have your own celebrations. Take time to share the story if you can Take time to, to tell people the Christmas story, even a quick one about who Jesus came from, Jesus who came from heaven to earth was born in a manger in order to die on a cross. Take the opportunity to tell the Christmas story. People are more open to listen now than ever before. And then secondly, take time to invite folks to hear the Christmas story. We're gonna continue the Christmas story throughout this season. And if there's one thing that you can do is you can invite someone to church. I looked up the statistics uh, a, uh, a, a thing was done by Lifeway uh, that they said, how, how likely would you be, go to, how likely would you attend church around the holidays if someone invited you? And 57% of people said, I would attend. If you simply invite someone around Christmas time to attend a service, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, or any of our services leading up to it, invite them to church. We've got a long list, as Pastor Kevin was talking to us during the announcements, of things that we can be doing. I mean, if you do it all, that's a lot, right? But we don't want to just have you do it all. We want to invite you. We want you to invite other people to come. We've got a kids musical. We've got a Christmas party. Uh, we've got off-campus uh, events that are happening. Take a look at those things and say, who among my neighbors might I invite to that? Who among those who are my co-workers might I bring them along to this? Listen, guys, this is our holiday. This is what Christmas is all about. It's about Jesus. I mean, they're playing our songs in the malls. I mean, they're playing our songs on the radio. They're playing our movies on the television. If you're going to be bold about Christ, now's the time to do it. So let's invite people to come and hear the truth of the gospel. Invite them into our home. Invite them into church. And then thirdly this morning, let me close with this. If you haven't, receive the gift of Christmas. The gift of Christmas is the gift of forgiveness and everlasting life. As we've already said, we all need Christmas. 
We all need a savior. The Bible says all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. If you're sitting here today and you know that your heart is not in a right place before a holy God, because you've missed the mark, you've sinned, you've fallen short, you know you're in a state of brokenness, shame, and guilt. And the root cause of that is a heart that is in rebellion against God. I want to invite you this morning to admit your need for Jesus. To say, Jesus, I need you. I've sinned. I'm deserving of the consequences of sin. Secondly, I'd invite you to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He's God who came from heaven to earth to, to be born in a manger, to die on a cross for your sins and to confess Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. And let me tell you, you're gonna have the best Christmas ever. Can we pray? Father in heaven, I wanna pray for anyone who wants to receive that gift who wants to uh, uh, have the hope of eternal life, who wants to have the assurance that when they die and they meet the Lord, uh, that they know where they will be with you, with God, and your, your people forever. Uh, so, Father, I pray that they can say this in their hearts and mean it from their heart. Father, I recognize I'm a sinner. I admit my need for you. I'm broken without you. There's a hole in my heart that can only be filled with Christ. The, the, the root cause of my sin is my rebellion against you. Uh, but today, I, I want to say I believe. I believe that Jesus was sent from heaven to earth to be born in a manger in order to die on a cross for my sins. I make Jesus my Savior, my Lord, the one I'm going to follow all the days of my life into eternity. Father, thank you for the Christmas story. Thank you for the opportunity we have as a church to share this message of hope with the lost and dying world around us. Father, will you lay some people on our hearts this morning? Some people who don't know you who are among our neighbors. Some people who don't know you who are among our coworkers. Father, help us to make the Christmas story become real for those who you have entrusted under our care, whether our children or our grandchildren, Lord. Help us to tell the Christmas story so that they might receive the gift of redemption and forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Father, we thank you for these things. We give you all the glory, all the honor, and the praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.